You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to Genesis 22. This morning we'll take Genesis 22 as one complete passage and See if we can't do the whole chapter this morning. Genesis 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from above and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all of the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told Abraham, Behold, Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Abaz, his brother, Camuel, the father of Aram, Cassid, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight, Milcah, bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Tebah, Geham, Tehash, and Maacah. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you, Father, for your word. We so thank you and praise you, Father, for uh, such an exhaustive uh, Bible as, uh, as we have, O oh, Father. 
where there's really no situation we can find ourselves in that your, your scriptures or your word does not speak to. So, Father, we thank you for all of this guidance and encouragement. And, Father, we ask that you would be pleased to bless us this morning, Lord, as we seek and desire to study your word. Uh, we desire to hear your voice. We desire that you would give us understanding and that, Father, you would give us application. And, Father, you, you would change us, O oh Lord, uh, by way of your Holy Spirit. May he, may he lead us and guide us and, and change us, O oh Father. Change us for all eternity as we look to your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Our text begins this morning with these words, after these things God tested Abraham. I think we could pause right there and think to ourselves, because now we're really coming. This is really the, the climax of uh, of of Abraham's, at least his recorded pilgrimage with God. And uh, when we read this first initial sentence, after these things God tested Abraham, we might say to ourselves, well, we've seen Abraham tested many times through the course of his pilgrimage, have we not? You know, I mean, let's think, Abraham is called, I mean, even, you know, he's called uh, in Genesis 12, and even if you just turn there for a moment and just revisit that passage, as we think of testing, uh, in Genesis 12, verse 1, the Lord initially comes to Abraham, and He's, he's calling him out of, uh, out of darkness, out of really what we would call pagan idolatry, and He's calling him to Himself. And of course, in this sense, it's the greatest blessing that anyone could, could ever ask for or ever want to be called to the Lord. But notice the test here. He says, go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And here, Abraham is really saying goodbye to practically everything he knew up to that point, is he not? And it's easy for us, I think, to forget about that. Um, he, he's basically off. He, he's leaving really everything. Uh, the only family that he really has with him is Lot. And no sooner is, is uh, Abraham leaving, and it, it seems very soon as he enters down into the land of Canaan, uh, what happens? He's met with a severe famine, which would be a test. I mean, imagine yourself, okay, Lord, why, why did you call us down here so that we could starve and so that everything could perish? And of course, Abraham, young in his faith, what does he do? He trusts in really in his own ingenuity, he trusts in his street smarts, and that ends up in another trial down in Egypt, doesn't it? which we have seen. Down in Egypt, you know, this whole thing with Abraham is saying to Sarah, listen, everywhere we go, you need to tell everybody I'm your brother, and I'll say that you are my sister. And this, this ends up really in a, in a mess down in Egypt. But of course, God intervenes, and they're delivered. They're delivered, and then in chapter 13, Abraham has another struggle. Uh, the land is insufficient to support Abraham's household and Lot's household. Now, Lot, being his nephew, Abraham being childless at this point, I, I think we could read between the lines and, and, and quite easily conclude that Lot's probably in many ways like a son to Abraham. I don't think that's a stretch, is it? I don't think it's a stretch at all, but here we find Abraham in another, another test. The herdsmen are not getting along. They're bickering and fighting. And Lot, Abraham says, listen, we're going to have to separate. You know, you choose which way you want to go, and I'll go the other way. And then Lot makes what had to have been to Abraham a painful choice. He chooses to go down into Sodom. 
near Sodom and Gomorrah. That had to have been a painful choice for Abraham. So here we see yet another trial. And of course, Lot, he gets all entangled in the things of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he ends up getting caught up in this whole thing with these with these kings, Kedar Lahomer comes in and sacks the place. And then Abraham has another trial. And in, in Genesis 14, we see yet another struggle where he has to go and rescue Lot. We get to Genesis 15, and we can see now it's probably been about 10, maybe 11 years or so since God has promised Abraham a son. And the Lord comes to uh, really to recommit his promises, if you will, to reiterate his promises to Abraham. And what is Abraham? I mean, he, he says in verse 2, Oh Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? So sometimes it's easy for us to forget about the years that he has gone and still has not really seen really anything of the promise. I think sometimes we read, you know, when you're reading Scripture and sometimes many years can go by between sentences as we've seen, it's easy for us to forget the struggle. You know, years are going by and Abraham's not really hearing anything. And, you know... Um, as the months go by, Sarah is still barren. She's still childless. And Abraham says, what will you give me? I continue childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer. And of course, God uh, comes to him and, and encourages him and says, no, you, you, your time is coming. And then in Genesis 16, Sarah and Hagar, we, we, see, we, we see them on ups and we see them on downs. In Genesis 16, you know, Sarah has this idea that maybe the Lord will, maybe the Lord's plan is uh, for uh, Abraham to marry Hagar. And that's how the Lord will make good on the promises. And of course, Abraham goes through with it. And boy, the family dynamic had to change after that. And uh, we see a little bit of that actually um, as Ishmael is, is born. And now you have this really crazy uh, thing going on. So inevitably, I mean, there, there had to have been a lot of struggles itinerant to that that aren't even recorded here. Uh, we get to Genesis 17, and, and the Lord reiterates, uh, the time is near. Um, Isaac is, is going to be, Isaac's about a year out. Uh, God, um, he promises uh, Abraham uh, this in Genesis 17 and Genesis 18. He promises Sarah. And then comes the Sodom and Gomorrah issue. Uh, God announces that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. That had to have been a lump in Abraham's stomach, knowing that Lot's there, but also we see Abraham very admirably interceding for uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. But the struggle there, again, another struggle. And then in Genesis 20, we have Abraham again falling to fear, it seems, uh, with his struggle with Abimelech. And uh, there we see that really he's rebuked by Abimelech and what had to have been probably one of the most humiliating uh, moments of Abraham's life uh, being rebuked rightfully by Abimelech. And then in Genesis 21, which we looked at last, and by the way, Genesis 21 was a lot of fun to preach after all of this, especially verses 6 and 7, when Sarah is actually holding, you know, holding Isaac after waiting all these years, and all she can do is laugh. You know, and, and the only, again, I will say is I reflect on verses 6 and 7, the only thing I can think of is music. The only thing I can think of is the most beautiful chords. You're thinking of major nines and major sevens, and you're thinking of arpeggios that are sweeping up and down uh, as you read these passages because the English language really is falling short of trying to describe and put into words the glory, the joy 
that is present here in verses 6 and 7. But then a couple of years go by between verse 7 and verse 8. Isaac is now... uh, He's now weaned, and they throw a feast for him, probably two and a half, three years later after verse 7. And what happens? Ishmael begins to persecute Isaac, as we saw last week. And what comes into Abraham's life again? But yet another test, another trial. And Abraham has to do the painful thing of casting off Ishmael. And we review all of this because this, you know, this whole notion that all you got to do is hand your life over to Jesus and life is going to go well for you. Where does that come from? (laughs) This doesn't sound to me like an easy life. So as we hand our lives over to Jesus and we start discovering this isn't really easy, we have all of these chapters to comfort us, don't we? All of these chapters to comfort us. And we come all the way to Genesis 22. And after these things, we think after all of this, Abraham surely in his old age can just begin to coast on into glory, right? Not so fast. After these things, God tested Abraham. (laughs) And notice the test. Abraham... God tested Abraham and said, God says to Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham responds. Notice his response. It comes up a couple of times. He says, here am I. Here am I. I always think of Psalm 120. I think it's 123 when I read that word. Psalm 123. You don't need to turn there, but just Psalm 123, one of the song of ascents. And it reads this way. It says, to you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in heaven. Verse 2, this really is the verse that comes to my mind when I see this. Here am I. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till He has mercy upon us. When Abraham responds to the Lord's calling and says, Here am I. Uh, his, His eye is upon his Lord, isn't it? His eye is upon upon Almighty God. And in verse 2, what does God say to Abraham? He says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And our breath is taken away, isn't it? I mean, if you wanted to put this scene into a movie, you would need a serious actor to be able to do this one. I mean, let's think of Abraham's facial expression when he hears these words. There's many parents in the room. Can you imagine hearing these words? Wouldn't you want to run to somebody and tell them, hey, I got this problem? But you wouldn't be able to do that. Abraham doesn't do that. Why? As soon as he runs to somebody and tells them, what are they going to do? They're going to try to stop him. Abraham, you've lost your mind. God would never tell you to do such a thing as that. I don't know how God is communicating this to Abraham, but we are told by Holy Scripture that he is. Abraham somehow knew that it was the Lord speaking, that the Lord was telling him to do this. 
Can you imagine the gut-wrenching emotions that Abraham is experiencing in this moment when this is said to him? And notice the way that it is said to him. In verse 2, it says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Again, you've heard me say many times, the Bible doesn't babble on. It doesn't, God's word doesn't, he doesn't waste words. He doesn't write words. He's not trying to meet a certain word count, you know, for a publisher here. Every word matters. And it says, take your son. It could have just said, listen, I want you to take Isaac and I want you to take him to Moriah, to the land of Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. Could have said that. But no, it says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Here we see the natural relation that Abraham has to his son Isaac. The natural relationship, meaning Abraham is his father. How? How? I mean, the pagan nations around them were doing this. They were offering child sacrifice, actually. Um, they were doing this in antiquity. And just so, we, just so we know that this isn't something that just went on in antiquity. This is something that goes on every day in the United States, by the way. The statistics that I've read recently, and I wasn't looking for these statistics, I just came across them as I was reading various things, but the statistics are 3,000 children a day are being sacrificed. And many of them are being sacrificed to the God of self. Not the God of Molech, the God of self. Here, God says to Abraham, take your son. Isaac is Abraham. Before anything else, before Abraham is the father of the faithful, before Abraham is a servant of God, before all these things, he is a father to Isaac, isn't he? Take your son. Your only son. Just a reminder. He's the child of promise whom you love and go to the land of Moriah. So we have the, nat the tension that's on the natural side. Abraham loves Isaac. How is Abraham to answer to Sarah for this? Or to the community for this? But on the promise side of it all, how, how is God going to fulfill His promises if the child of promise is killed. Calvin, writing on this subject, puts it this way. He says that here, God puts His command in contest with His promise. Many commentators use the word perplexing over these verses. This is perplexing. The word that I keep wanting to use is shocking. In fact, the title of this message is a shocking trial. Uh, to me, it's, it's absolutely shocking. How would, why would God command something that He abhors? Why would God command His servant to sacrifice a child? God is a 
finds that absolutely abhorrent. It's abominable. Why would God do this? And how is God going to fulfill his promises if this is carried out? How does Abraham react? Oh, this is this is this is beyond. This is this is beyond us, I think. Verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning. This is the first order of business, mind you. Early in the morning, probably as soon as there's daylight, as soon as the earliest opportunity. He saddles his donkey. He took two of his young men with him. Took his son Isaac with him. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now notice that Abraham's not delegating any of these things himself. He's cutting the wood himself. Could you imagine cutting that wood? With each cut, you're realizing what this, the purpose of this wood is for. He's not wavering, is he? He's not wavering. He sets off to the place that God had told him, and then look at the detail we have in verse 4. On the third day, on the third day, Abraham is carrying this for three days. It's not told anyone. I, I think we could conjecture quite easily that this is an emotional three days. If you were Isaac, you'd probably notice something's up with Dad. You know, he, he goes from withdrawing and praying to coming back, and it looks like he's been crying, and then he's all huggy-huggy. Dad's not really huggy-huggy, but he's just really huggy I think something's wrong with Dad. Something's up with Dad. We don't know how old Isaac is at this point. Some say 12. 14, some say 18, some say 30. Fact is, we don't really know. How could Isaac not know something's up with his father for these three days? And then finally, Abram lifts up his eyes and saw the place from afar. That had to have been a moment where butterflies aren't the right word, but what else do you use for that inward pang that, that you feel when you know, okay, there it is. Now he can actually see the place. It's still far off, but he can see it. It's now in view. Verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy, you'll, some of you will have a footnote after boy. If you look the foot up, footnote up in the margin, it'll say young man. We don't know the age of Isaac. But Abraham says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And verse 5 is very instructive. Undoubtedly, Abraham has not stopped praying for this whole three, these whole three days. I doubt he's probably not, probably not slept. He's probably not stopped praying for this whole time. And he seems to have at least almost figured this thing out. Because what does he say to the young man? You stay here. You stay here with the donkey. Perhaps the hill was too steep for the donkey anyways. And he says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Here Abraham believed that both he and Isaac will return. Now how does Abraham believe this? He believes this because he believes that the Lord is going to raise Isaac from the dead. And that's not conjecture because the author to the letter of Hebrews tells us this in chapter 11, doesn't he? We know that that's the conclusion that Abraham come to because in this perplexing, even shocking 
uh, trial, if you will. Abraham's reasoning in his mind, how does this work? Notice that we don't have any record of, of him stopping and saying, oh Lord, if you're going to raise him, why, can we just, why don't we just skip this? You know, that would be the kind of a 21st century American way of looking at it. Let's just skip the step. We don't have it. Abraham couldn't possibly understand what the reason behind this is, but he's following, he's obeying, and he believes that the Lord will raise Isaac from the ashes, literally. Uh, so both of them went, go together. And then in verse, well, in verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, his son being much younger and able to carry it. Then he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and both of them went together. And in verse 7, Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and notice how Abraham responds. Here's those three words again. Here, here am I. Here am I, my son. Isaac says, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a bird offering? How, how would you have answered that question? I mean, Abraham's answer is really amazing, isn't it? He says, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order. And here, here we learn something about Isaac, don't we? He bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, I don't think for a second that Isaac couldn't have got away from his, what, 112-year-old father, if Isaac's 12, or his 118-year-old father, if he's 18, or his 130-year-old father, if he's 30 years old. I mean, there shouldn't have been much of a contest had there been a struggle. There's no struggle. I think at the very least we could say of Isaac that he has so much confidence and trust in his father that he goes along with what his father desires. But even once we say that, uh, what is the source of, of Abraham's joy, the source of Abraham's guidance, the source of Abraham's everything? The source of Abraham's everything is his God. I think there's no question beyond any, really any reasonable doubt that now, Isaac is also walking in faith with his father here. This is not just a trial for Abraham. This is a trial for Isaac, isn't it? When we get to verse 10, Abraham reaches out his hand, he takes the knife, and I wonder how many times, you hold the knife, how many times... He's just about to go through with it in verse 11 the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And notice the words Abraham uses. Here am I. Here am I. And the tension is released when the angel of the Lord says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. The tension is finally released. And who does he hear these words from? We're told the angel of the Lord. Who is the angel of the Lord? I am of the, 
of the conviction. The angel of the Lord is none other than the Son of God, the mediator between the Father and man. So it is the Son of God. We could say pre-incarnate Jesus, but I don't know that there's any pre-incarnation here. He hears, he hears the angel call him. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. God did not have to put Abraham through this exercise to know that he feared him. That's, this isn't for God's purposes, is it? God knows all things. But there is a sense in which God knows. Even And I think that's the sense that this is pointing to when it says, for I know that you fear God. God now knows it experientially because Abraham is, you know, he's always known it really cognitively for sure because he knows all things, but now he knows it experientially in the respect, in the respect that Abraham has gone through with this. Now he's he's going to go through, he's going to do it. There's no question he's going to do it. Abraham lifts up his eyes in verse 13. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. What an amazing illustration of substitutionary atonement. There Isaac is bound. He's on top of the wood. He's bound and just seconds away from being sacrificed when he is released from the cords taken off of the pile of wood, and a substitute is brought and put in his place. What an illustration we have here. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Of course, the Lord will provide, won't he? He will provide, and he has provided, hasn't he? If... Each of us, one of the hardest things when you're sharing the gospel with people, I had this experience here uh, just this past week. When you're sharing the gospel with people and you're sharing with them, you get to the place where you're able to share with them, listen, we deserve to be on the wood pile. That is repugnant to our culture because our culture just fully embraces that we deserve nice things. Not just nice, in America, it's not just a few nice things. We deserve the very best of the very best. So that is one of the major obstacles of the, of the gospel is, is to try to lead people to embrace and They're not going to embrace it without the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, but to lead people to embrace that we deserve to be on the pile of wood. Isaac would say, oh, the innocent Isaac needs taken off that wood pile. He has no business being up there. Actually, really? Really? In terms of God's tribunal? We have no right to put him there. That much is true. God has every right to put him there. That much is truer. And that's where we all, let's that's, 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 see, that's where we all deserve to be up on the wood pile. Verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I've sworn, declares the Lord, Notice that this, this is a strong statement. It's easy to miss in verse 16. The Lord swears by who? 
himself. He doesn't have to do that. If God says something, that's enough. He does this for our benefit. I swear by myself. There's no one higher to swear by. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will bless you. And, and, and it, we could be in a conundrum if all we had were these few verses here. We actually might come to the conclusion that we could earn salvation, huh? Oh, because you've done this wonderful thing. I'm going to bless you with salvation. But that will not stand up to the scrutiny of the rest of Scripture. We've got to get that out of our minds. It's one of the hardest things to get out of our minds because we are so wired up for earning things. We want to earn things. Our pride leads us to want to earn things. That will not stand up to the scrutiny of Scripture. God is here blessing Abraham because he has done this, but he's not blessing him in a meritorious way. As we obey God, we receive blessings for sure. And what, what obedience do we have here? God doesn't even owe any reward for this obedience. If God tells us to do something, we're, we're to do it. He doesn't owe us anything when we do it. But He's such a good God that he gives, he, 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 he gives us blessings when we do it anyway, just because of out of His abundant goodness. But it's not something that He owes us. He doesn't owe us anything. And he reiterates these wonderful promises. I'll bless you. I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So Abraham returned to his young men, just as he said. See that in verse 19? He knew he was going to. He returned to his young men, both him and Isaac, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Oh, what a wonderful worship service they just had. It'd be pretty hard to outdo that one, wouldn't it? Shocking, isn't it? It's just shocking at every step, isn't it? And and then we 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 really might wonder what is up with like the very end. Like here we kind of have okay. After these things, it was told Abraham that Milcah has born children to to Abraham's brother Nahor. And we have this list of these, uh, these uh, eight uh, children, and then we have a list of more children um, bore to one of his concubines. What are we to do with that? Um, again, I would say this is shocking. This is shocking through the eyes of faith. It's not shocking through the, through the world so much, but maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But it's here Abraham is. Walking with God for all of these years. How many years has been? If, 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 if Isaac is 30 years old and Abraham's been walking with the Lord for 55 years, how many children does Abraham have? One, or two, technically. But he cast one of them off under the Lord's direction and he's got one. How many children does his brother have? Isn't that the shocking and perplexing thing? You, know, you could fall into a Psalm 73 moment here, you know, and if you don't know what that means, write down Psalm 73 and go read it this afternoon. I don't have time to go really into all of that. But I give you in brief, it's where the psalmist looks at the world and how prosperous the world is, and he looks at himself, and here he's trying to follow the Lord, and he, he just about blows it. I mean, he, he's like, man, I mean, 
I'm going through one trial after another and hardship after hardship. And here are these guys and nothing ever seems to happen to them. Things are just going wonderful for them. Shocking. The world, under the world's estimate, um, Nahor's the more blessed, isn't he? Under the, under the Bible's estimate, Abraham is there's not even a beginning of a contest, is there? What do we make of this? I've already given, really, I've already alluded to quite a few things here, but in conclusion, let me, let me reiterate those and maybe add another or two. First and foremost, it's only by the act of our, of our substitute can we be saved. I mean, if we wanted to look at ourselves as being bound on the, on the, on the wood pile, I think that would be healthy for us to see ourselves instead of seeing Isaac there just see ourselves bound there and tied, unable to get free until the word from God comes and our cords are loose and we're pulled away only for Jesus to take our place. It's only by the act of our substitute can we be saved. And second to that and related to that is we know the Father loves us. Look again to verse 2. Notice that God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. That's what Abraham is to do. But what does the father do? He took his son, his only son Jesus, whom he loves, and he offers him on the cross in our place. You know, in our study of Acts, some of you know that we've been studying Peter's sermon and have been really taking a lot of time with it and going really slow. And one of the points that Peter makes is that Jesus is delivered up by God. Abraham is spared. He doesn't have to go through with the sacrifice, but the Father does go through with it, doesn't He? He does the unthinkable. And Jesus, Jesus does the unthinkable. He for the joy set before Him, He goes through with it. And Jesus is offered upon the cross and He takes away our shame or guilt or vileness or corruption that we could be washed and be clean. It's amazing. Third thing is when we're perplexed with what God is doing, Abraham shows us the way, doesn't he? <laughs> I, perplexed is not a bad word, is it? I've been using shocking, but perplexed is a good word. How, Abraham is perplexed. God, what are you doing? Things come into our lives and we sometimes can't make sense of them. What are we supposed to do when we can't make sense of them? We obey the clear commands that God has given us. Abraham's showing us the way, isn't he? You know, we could be perplexed by all kinds of things. We could be perplexed about what to do at the workplace or perplexed of what to do with our teenagers or what to do with, really, and it's not just teenagers, by the way, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, You know, the Father's present here. He might be saying, yeah, and 50-somethings too. When we're perplexed, what do we do? Abraham leads the way, doesn't he? Abraham leads the way, and we rely on what we know about God. We rely on His perfect character, His loving, His loving character, and knowing that even if it looks the worst, that God has a... God has a loving enterprise in this. 
that's going to prove to be good. I mean, it's pretty clear. And really related to that, we can say it's going to be okay because God's in it. Whatever trial we face is ultimately going to be okay because God's in it. If we're in Christ, it's going to be okay because God's in it. If we're in Christ, he, he's, he's not going to stand back and watch us go at it alone. It's going to be okay because He's going to lead us through it. In fact, He's even ordered it into our lives. What are we told in verse 1? After these things, God tested Abraham. Who brought this into Abraham's life? God did with His command. A perplexing command. And lastly, I'll leave you with this. We think that when we reach a certain age, I mean, we're inclined to think that when we reach a certain place, we're going to be able to just coast into glory. No. 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 I, I don't... I hope we don't think that. I mean, uh, the American idea of retirement makes us want to maybe think that way because, you know, you work all these years and you save up whatever you can save up and you get this pension and then you can, you know, you, you, know, you can retire and then do nothing. Um, that's all unbiblical, by the way. Um, it really is unbiblical. We've never been called to do nothing or to do meaningless things with our time. But when we import that kind of thinking into our faith, we can think, well, the trials are for when we're young. You know, ch child rearing is something you do when you're young. And then when you get older, then you can coast. Well, how old is Abraham when, when this is the greatest test of his faith? Is he a young man here? No. No. I, I, I've walked with a number of seniors, been with them, you know, in this particular context, I'm not doing it as much as I have in other contexts. And I've been with folks, really been with folks when they've breathed their last. And, and I, you know, oftentimes, very oftentimes, the greatest suffering was in the very last chapter of their lives. It was with my grandfather. Um, the, very, the very worst of the worst is for the end. And that's a terrible place to end a sermon. I'll have to come up with something a little better than that. I don't want us to leave here like that. But it's something we need to be aware of, isn't it? So that when we begin to experience it, and some of us aren't that far away from beginning to experience that, we're not going to be surprised when it happens. And we're going to have something to look to. We're going to say, boy, you know, Abraham, he was what, 112, 118, maybe 130 when this happened? He's showing us the way through. And we can see how it ends, and we can know that just as it ended for Abraham, it's also going to end for us, and that's more of an encouraging thing. The thing about it is, here, let's end on this. The thing about it is, as Abraham is about to slaughter his son, who calls out to him? That's right. And... Why is he able to do that? It's because he's right there with him. Just as he has promised to each one of us that he will always be. Lo and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's a better place to close. Amen? Heavenly Father, Lord, as we look to this chapter, 
And as we, as the reformers would say, as we see these things that are going on in Abraham, we see a mirror. We see a reflection that though we're not going to be asked to do the things Abraham was asked to do, but nevertheless, not specifically those things, uh, but nevertheless, there, there are many trials that await us. And Father, we are so encouraged. Some of them will be maybe even shocking to us. And here we see in this shocking trial, we see that you bring Abraham safely to the other side. You bring Isaac safely to the other side. And Father, we're encouraged this morning as we face trials. and Some are facing them even now as we speak. Some of the greatest hardships that we've ever known. And Father, we can know and be encouraged from this particular passage of Scripture that you're with us always, even in the midst of these shocking trials, the shocking storms that come into our lives. And Father, though some of us may be, a, these things may be a good ways off or they may be tomorrow. Nevertheless, Father, you, you're encouraging us and preparing us for these things even now. And for that, Father, we're so grateful. And we're also equally grateful that you'll be with us uh, through them all. And we can know that none of us will ever suffer like Jesus suffered in our place. And so, Father, we have so much to be encouraged and we have so many reasons to continue to look to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.